Well, we've been preaching through Corinthians, and um, we're on page four of your bulletin. This is kind of really a two-part sermon, so you'll remember I preached on the first two verses like a month ago. (laughs) So if you can remember that, that's great. If you can't, no problem. Um, But I'm actually going to start in verse 12 and 13, which are not printed in your bulletin, just to remind you of that first sermon, if you were here. It's just two verses, and then we'll pick up in verse uh, 14, which is in your bulletin, and then our response will be, thanks be to God. So hear the word of the Lord. I'm going to start in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Picking up in verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. So I, I warned you last time, but I'm going to warn you again. Our um, topic is somewhat of a uh, mature topic. So parents, uh, I made this sermon as accessible as I possibly could, but this is about sexual immorality. <laughs> so that's what we're preaching on. All right. So again, we've been preaching through Corinthians and we're finishing this second uh, section of a sermon I preached earlier. Uh, and perhaps more than any other time, in all of our lives, um, we can feel the weight of this particular passage, can't we? Uh, Paul is calling us to honor God with our sexuality. And right now, all around us, honoring God sexually has become a very difficult task. So Paul shows us the power that sex has. And along with that power comes a strong desire in us to live sexually fulfilled lives. And the main secular argument right now is that I have a right to live a sexually fulfilling life in the manner that I choose. And frankly, I think Christians can feel this too. We feel it strongly. The desire to express ourselves sexually the way we want to can feel, can be really strong. Very hard to resist. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can become bitter towards God and feel like he is making unreasonable demands on our bodies. But the point of the passage is this. What God longs for and what he's calling us to is not sexual integrity for the sake of sexual integrity, but sexual faithfulness to a God who has a love affair with his people. God's desire is for your faithfulness as a wife to her husband. 
So our response then to the challenge of sexual integrity is to respond to God's call of faithfulness by loving God with all of our hearts. So we're going to look at this through three points today. We're going to look at sex as uniting, fleeing sexual immorality, and the costliness of sexual integrity. So you don't have an outline, sex is uniting, fleeing sexual immorality, and the costliness of sexual integrity. So let's look at sex as uniting. We'll begin with a a central lesson that Paul teaches, Uh, and he continues this lesson all throughout his letters, and that is that when you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, something happens, something mysterious and miraculous and permanent. What happens is that your life is joined forever to the life of Jesus. Now, we are not just joined spiritually, we're joined physically. Physically to Jesus. So, verses 14 and 15, one day after you die, when Jesus returns and the dead are raised, He will raise not your spirit or the idea of you or your memories, but He will raise your body. Your bodies will be raised. Your body will be raised. Likewise, your bodies now, right now, are equally joined to Jesus. That is what it means when the text says that your bodies are members of Christ. Now, what is the image we're given of this joining? And it's an image we all know. It's marriage. It's marriage. To be joined to Jesus is like a marriage where Jesus is the bridegroom and you are the bride just as a husband and a wife have sex to consummate their marriage, so deep is the intimacy that you share with Jesus. Now, new believers always feel weird about this. That's okay. Uh, especially if you're a man, you've kinda, you can struggle with this picture in the Bible. So what exactly is this pastor saying? <laughs> um, now look, this is a picture we're given in the, in the Bible Any analogy could be taken too far. Uh, The picture is given in the Bible for a reason. I want you to pay attention. Sex is not so powerful in your life because it gives you meaning. If I'm sexually fulfilled, I'll be happy. Sex is not so powerful because of some Darwinian desire to produce offspring. Sex is not so powerful because you long to be known and touched and honored. Sex is so powerful because it points to God's love for you. In the marriage bed, when a husband and a wife tenderly and joyfully love each other, God is saying, I love you like that. Now, is this scandalous to you? Wow, I did not think the pastor would go there. Well, the Bible goes there, and you need to get it. You need to get it because if you miss the point of sex, then you will always be striving for the wrong thing. You'll be running your whole life after sex and missing the one to whom sex points. So the Bible-given picture of God united to our bodies is pictured by sex, and it is called the doctrine of union with Christ. And we have an elder here amongst us, Jim Partridge, who loves this doctrine. This is, I think, is his favorite doctrine. And it is for good reason. It's at the heart of the gospel. 
I want you to imagine the most perfect spouse who's committed to you, who loves you with an everlasting love, who serves you, who is forever faithful. That is the Lord's love for you. That's why Jim loves this doctrine so much, the gospel. The good news is that through Jesus Christ, God will go to the depths of hell itself in order to have you. Now look at the end of verse 15 and 16. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Do you see why Paul says this? If we are united, both body, verse 15, to Christ, and our spirits, verse 17, to the Lord, then it is an act of great unfaithfulness to cheat on our Savior. These verses are saying that when we have sex outside of marriage, that covenantal promise is broken. Paul's reasoning for this goes back to the Garden of Eden when God pronounces the two will become one flesh. They're joined. Sex in marriage primarily points to our relationship with God. Secondly, sex in marriage binds us to our spouse. Uh, did you ever use a two-part epoxy? So, um, I, lo- I love two-part epoxy. It's super strong if you've never used it. Far stronger than glue. You use two different vials and you mix it together and um, it becomes this really solid bond. Sex is powerful because it was created to form an inseparable bond. Sex is so powerful because it was created to form a bond that cannot be broken. So look, if you're new to Christianity, if you think you've heard all this before, um, but you're really thinking, man, these Christians are so uptight and stuffy and sexually repressed, I want you to hear me out on this. The reason that we are so promiscuous with our money, but guarded with our sexuality is because we believe what the Bible says about the power of sex. Casual sex is not frowned upon in the Bible because God is some over-controlling parent. Rather, he's a parent who lovingly warns his children that whoever they have sex with will bind them inseparably. He's a parent who cares for the hearts of his children. You know, as a parent, this is why we talk to our children about sex. Because God talks with us about sex. It's an unloving act not to warn your children To not give them this understanding that the Bible has about the uniting power of sex. Now, we do this in an age-appropriate way, and please hear me on this. Sex, however age-appropriate we are, the world doesn't care. And sex is coming for your children at an earlier and earlier age. Uh, Fifth grade now is the average age that little boys first see pornography. Now with cell phones, snapping a picture, sharing it on the bus, it can happen in an instant. It's all too easy, and it can be just a picture that changes the course of a child's life. When I was in college, uh, I had a girlfriend, and we went too far sexually. And I can say from personal experience that the feeling of my heart breaking when that relationship ended 
was something that should have been avoided. And it's not just me. We hear this all over the place. Uh, Camden, my wife, who's a professional counselor, will hear stories of uh, girlfriends and boyfriends threatening to kill themselves if they get broken up with. If you break up with me, I'll kill myself. Why would you do that? Do you know how many other people in this world there are to fall in love with who will love you? It feels crazy to us, but it's not crazy. They have been bound together inseparably. All right, so that is how sex is uniting, and now I want to look at this call to flee sexual immorality. So we'll start in verse 18. This is my second point. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other, pers- every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul calls us, therefore, to flee sexual immorality. Now, we talked at length in the last sermon about sexual immorality. Uh, as a quick reminder, um, this is an umbrella term under which actual intercourse could reside, but so could any sexual act from kissing to lying uh, on a couch together. And I'll refer back, you back to that sermon if you want to hear more. I spent a long time talking about what does sexual immorality in the Bible mean. But Paul says to flee it. That is a command, and it's written very strongly. So why flee? How do we flee? Well, here's the truth. If you followed me so far, and sex is as powerful as I argued it to be, the truth is that we all are weaker than we realize. If you've ever set off a big firework before, um, not this dinky kind that you buy in the, in the grocery store, but I mean like a, a proper firework, the real one, you don't light the firework and then linger next to it. Maybe take a stretch, you know, check the weather, text a friend, and then walk slowly away as the firework goes off. When you light it, you run. As soon as it's lit, you run away. You run away as fast as you can, and if you don't, then when the rocket goes off next to your face, your face is going to burn off. So I had a bad firework accident once. Um, I lit a handful of sparklers. I had a big handful that I was supposed to pass out, and I lit it, and it blew up. Did you know that? Did you know if you light a handful of sparklers, it will blow up? It, It will. So don't do that. And I melted the skin off my entire index finger. It was gross. We flee because we recognize the power of what we're dealing with. So what is the problem? Here's the problem. The problem is when you see an attractive man or woman, when you see the advertisement on the web page or the person on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or at the beach and it's hard to control your eyes, you are not thinking, man, this is going to burn my face off. All you see is a welcoming embrace. All you see is uh, something that is provocative and seductive. It's, It's insidious. It's unassuming. It's seductive. It draws you in. So Proverbs is really good on this. I'm going to read you just a little bit from chapter 5. This is a father speaking to his son about this exact topic. He says, chapter 5, verse 5 of Proverbs, he says, My son... Be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to understanding, 
that you may keep discretion, that your lips may guard knowledge, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near to the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others in your years to the merciless. Did you hear it? Don't go anywhere near her. Keep your way far from her. Don't even look down the road that goes there. We have a bald-faced hornet's nest uh, next to our house right now. And I told my kids, I said, don't go near it. For some reason, all they want to do is go near that bald-faced hornet's nest. Brothers and sisters, the reality is, is that if you have gone near, you have already lost. Maybe once, maybe twice, you'll escape, but you've been drawn in. You have to have the humility to recognize this is more powerful than we can handle. And even mature believers have been taken in. So how do we flee? How do we flee? Well, the headline of our, our day is not a brothel down the road like it used to be. It's not even an adult club that you'd visit anymore or even a particular person, though it could be any of these things. Today, the number of people who have uh, premarital sex has actually decreased more than in the past 50 years. So what's changed? The internet. The internet's changed. People actually prefer now the internet, pornography, over actually having real sex with other people. And if you think about it, it makes sense. It's easier, it's faster, it's tailor-made, you can fulfill whatever fantasy you want at the click of a button without attachment, except, remember, there is attachment. Now, we have to make a distinction here. Adult material is not the same as two people joining themselves physically, but it can be equally, if not more, devastating. Sex addiction, whether it's in response to the internet or real people, uh, is increasing. Now, I have a test for you. If you don't think you have an addiction, then stop. Then stop. See what happens. So I lead the men's New Hope group for men who struggle with uh, sex or internet addiction. And the goal is one year sobriety. One year sobriety. If you can make it a year, I will concede that you are not bonded to this online material. But I'll warn you, I have met no one yet who could do that without first admitting the depth of the struggle. So I have some practical advice for you. What does it look like to flee the way of the adulteress? In our day and age, it means this. It means backing way off the internet. Maybe the path to the adulteress for you is Facebook. Don't get on Facebook. Maybe don't get on it at all. Maybe extremely limit your time. Maybe it's YouTube. YouTube is now out of your life. It's gone. You'll be okay. Instagram, Twitter, some other website. Maybe it's the internet altogether. Maybe it's your computer. Maybe it's having the computer in your house. It is really hard today, but we have to identify where does the path start 
to her house. And we have to believe the Bible when it says don't go near it. So what is Paul talking about then when he says that every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body? Paul is not saying that sexual sin is inherently worse than any other sin. But he is saying that it is a sin, uh, it's a different sin in the way that it affects us. There is something about sexual sin that goes straight to the core of who we are as people. If we're accepted sexually, it's like being accepted at the core of who we are. This is why, uh, by the way, that we're currently in what is called the second sexual revolution uh, in America. The number of uh, gays, lesbians, bisexual, transsexual people have shot up in the past five years. And it's not like we've been hiding these people away and all of a sudden here they are. What's happening is that people are finding their identity in their sexual expression. Namely, if you accept me as gay or queer or bi or whatever it is, then I will be truly known. There is no sin like sexual sin that challenges a person to their core. So Paul warns us when we sin sexually, it affects us in our very person. So here's an interesting application of this as I did research. Um, not everyone who looks at pornography is a pedophile, but every pedophile, everyone, uses pornography. In order to flee from sexual sin, it has to begin with the recognition of the power of what you're dealing with. I've seen men uh, forsake their wives, families destroyed, relationships with God abandoned, all for the sake of having the sexual fulfillment. And I'm telling you, it is not worth it. All right, so sex is uniting. Uh, Paul calls us to flee sexual immorality. And lastly, I want to look at the costliness of sexual integrity, and we're going to start in verse 19. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul gives us our next picture of how we are united to God. The first uh, picture is of sex, and the second picture is is of the temple. He says that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that resides in us. So let's consider this. Remember the temple. The temple um, in which God dwelt in Jerusalem. And that temple was extraordinary. It was adorned. It was beautiful. It was a fitting place for the God of the universe to dwell. Painstaking detail is given in the Bible on how the Israelites were to construct the temple. Now hear this, and it was radical. At the time Paul was writing, not only would it be scandalous to say that a God would actually stoop low to have a love affair with a human, but it would be preposterous that a God would make his residence in a mortal being. It's undignified. It's beneath him. It was radical. Tim Keller argues that when that what we are reading here in 1 Corinthians is really the first sexual revolution, the Christian sexual revolution. Before this, in secular culture, it was assumed uh, that men could have sex with whomever they wanted, 
And that God was distant from our body, so it didn't really matter what we did with it. Men and women were not equal. They were not on equal footing, and uh, men could demand whatever they wanted from women. So understand how radical this was. All of a sudden, the Bible, in the Bible, sex has to be consensual. Husbands have to remain faithful to their wives. They can't cheat on them. Later in Corinthians, Paul talks about how their bodies belong to each other and they act like servants of one another. And finally, to cap it off, in a society where the body was looked down on and the spirit was lifted up, I want you to look at the text. God is in your bodies. Your bodies. Your physical, fleshy, disease-ridden, imperfect-looking, often hairy and smelly bodies. I'm just talking about myself. <laughs> Women, by the way, did you know this? Women were greatly, greatly uplifted in the, sexual, the Christian sexual revolution that the Bible brought. Women became these respected, valued creatures worthy of honor and dignity. Now look, what can this mean? Well, first it means this, that God chose to be faithful to a prostitute. Namely, God knows we're sinful. He knows we're fallen. He knows we have diseases and that we smell bad and that often we don't take care of ourselves. But... He loves you. He loves you so much that he would rather make you his dwelling place than to remain in the temple. Second, you are not your own. You have a lover and he's devoted to you. And listen to this. He cares what you do with your bodies. If our bodies are the temple of the living God, then it matters how we treat our bodies. Now look, I understand, we all have fallen bodies, but we should strive to take care of them. It is a God-honoring spiritual activity to exercise, to eat healthy, to avoid substances that hurt your bodies, to have good mental health, to have healthy friendships, to sleep well. All of these things are ways we can adorn the temple, our bodies in which God dwells. Third, and most importantly, your body came at a great cost. You were bought with a price. So my mother said to me growing up, she, saw, she always loved to say this, there's nothing free in this world. And she's right. There was a price that God had to pay for your body. And it was costly. The cost was paid by Jesus as he hung on the cross for our sins. So how do we glorify God with our bodies? Well, the first thing I want you to see is that sexual integrity is costly. On the one side, if you don't have sexual integrity, there is a cost, and you'll pay it. Lust, greed, selfishness, following your own desires, denial of God, denying His Word, having unhealthy relationships, living in shame and darkness have a cost. You may think you can live a dualistic life, one way in church, another way outside the church but you can't. There's a cost to being addicted to adult entertainment, and there is a cost to any act that is sexually immoral. Now, on the other side, there is a cost to living with sexual integrity. 
It means we will deny feelings. We will deny temptations. We'll live in periods of celibacy which can feel frustrating. We restrict what we watch, where we can go, what movies we can see, what apps we can use, who we spend time with. There is a costliness to doing the things that God says will bring us life. But it is worth the cost. Do you see the parallel in these verses? How do we honor God? The answer is the same way He honors us. We love Him with all of our hearts. Hear this. Sexual integrity happens when God becomes the center of our love. So Freud says that sexual frustration is from childhood longings. But what if our sexual frustration is actually our heart's deep longing for the one who made sex? Our goal in sexual integrity is that God himself becomes the focus of our love. Now, is it worth it? Is God worth the cost? I'm not saying that you have to first attain sexual integrity in order to have God but 1 John 1, 6-8 is helpful here. If we say that we have no sin, we lie. We don't practice the truth. At the same time, we don't go on living in sin. God loves you too much to let you dwell in your sin. One thing I know is this. Jesus thought you were worth the cost. And the price was high. Infinitely high. He suffered tremendously in order to buy you back because the cost of our sin against a holy and perfect God was an unpayable debt. God's love for you, his passion for you, his desire to have you was so extreme, so over the top, out of this world in love that he refused to share you. He wanted you all to himself. There was nothing he would not give to have you. So Jesus suffered hell itself to make heaven for you. Our God, our Father, Jesus the Bridegroom, and the Spirit who dwells in you is the most forgiving, most loving God that he refuses to stand idly by while you hurt yourself. He sees the cost and he makes the payment on your behalf. The gospel, friends, is that we are a more unfaithful spouse than we could ever dare dream. We are like the prostitute. We all are. But God is more faithful than you could ever dare hope. And no matter how bad bad things get, He will not leave you. He cannot. His heart is bound to yours. Friends, would you make Jesus the center of your heart's desire and you will live in the the sexual integrity he calls you to. Let's pray.